Do you remember where you were when we elected a Sasquatch president? How about when you learned Ben Franklin was a robot? Or first heard Stalin's mixtape? I'm Zach Powers. I'm Brian Flynn, and we host The Revisionists. Each episode, one person explains real history and another tells an alternate version. And the winner becomes the truth. We let comics from Denver and around the country run wild through history. It's an in-depth look at history, but with more Babadooks. Check out The Revisionists, available every other Saturday. Wherever you get podcasts and at revisionistpodcast.com. The John of All Trades Podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we We speak. speak. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 199. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And good lord, 199. We are fast approaching 200. We are just one episode away. I've got a great episode coming up for that. But first, my last dispatch from Denver Film Festival 2018. That's right. DFF 41, my coverage has come to a close, and oh my god, what a show I've got for you. The movie is Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records. And this is a big, big show because I've got four guests here. I've got Julia Nash. She is the director, also the daughter of Jim Nash, one of the founders of Wax Tracks Records. I've got Mark Skillicorn, who she refers to as her old ball and chain. He is listed as the writer. And then in addition to those two, that would have been good enough. But I've also got Groovy Man. And Groovy Man is the lead singer of My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. And this is a band that I adored. And getting to sit down with a music legend like that is amazing. But I've got not just one music legend, I've got two. Because in addition to Groovy Man, I've also got Jello Biafra. That's right, Jello Biafra, lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. Are you kidding me with this? These four people... Heavily involved with Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records, this is a family. And if you watch this film, and I had the pleasure of checking it out, I got a screener, which is one of my favorite parts of doing Denver Film Festival. What's most striking about it is that it's the story of people who came together. People who maybe felt like they were outside the mainstream, and they had a physical space to come be themselves and get together with people. It's like finding your tribe. It's finding your pack. And so the fact that Julia, Mark... Groovy and Jello all sat down with me and talked about this story, about their history together, about their time together, about the state of the music industry, about the growth of vinyl. I mean, God, what a thrill. What a pleasure. And this is packed with anecdotes that you might not get from the film. There's tons and tons of stuff in here. You'll notice when we start this interview, Jello Biafra's talking. And he goes on for about five minutes with this story. And I'm not going to spoil it for you. You'll have to hear it yourself. But at the end of it, I go, wow. And I didn't even ask you a question. And that's kind of what this is like. I mean, I direct the conversation a little bit, but part of the skill of hosting is knowing when to just get the hell out of the way. And in this case, I've got four tremendous people all sitting in front of me. Just don't get in their way. Let them tell their story. Give them a few prompts, but seriously, I don't need to prompt Groovy Man. I don't need to prompt Jello Biafra. Julia and Mark are the nuts and bolts of this film, and they put their heart into this because, I mean, this is their family. But I don't need to do too much here, so this episode is for you. 
And after nearly 200 episodes of this show, it's important to know when to just shut up and get out of the way. And there's a little bit of me in here, but it's mostly about my guests. I mean, Jesus, I'll say it again. Jello Biafra and Groovy Man. Dead Kennedys, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Those are two massive, fantastic, and great bands that I am thrilled to be able to show you here on the John of All Trades podcast. That episode is coming up here in just a second, but first, a quick shout out to Neil Trulio. And he is the press contact for Denver Film Festival. He's worked with me all four years that I have now done this festival, and he always sets me up with the best guests. I cannot thank him enough. This time of year on the show would not be what it is without Neil. I'd also like to give a quick shout to Britta Erickson. She was the first guest I talked to this year at DFF 41. Go back and listen to her interview. She is just a ray of sunshine putting goodness into this world by way of doing the Denver Film Fest. I think it's a premier festival, and I'm just thrilled to pieces to be a part of it. If you want to hear all of my episodes from DFF 41, go to the John of All Trades website. That's J-O-N of All Trades. US. There's a tab that says podcast. You go down to episodes, you'll see Denver Film Festival 2018. You'll find all five episodes right there. It's a super easy way of staying up with all the content that I've done this year. You can see previous film festivals there too. I've got tabs for each one of those. You'll see guests like Kyle Gass from Tenacious D or Jim O'Hare, who was in Parks and Recreation. Kyle Gass was last year. Jim O'Hare was two years ago. And you know what? Check out other filmmakers and more than anything, support local art. Go out, catch a local music show, go out, check some local film, support local comedy, buy local artists. This kind of thing matters. And particularly in this climate where things are very divisive, get involved in your local community, support local art. That's a little PSA from me. And I'm doing my own little part to contribute some good to the world. So support local artists, support local film. Now then, enough talking. Let's get to episode 199. We're talking about Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records. I've got Julian Ash, Mark Skillicorn. They are the director and the writer, respectively, of this film. I've also got Groovy Man, the lead singer of My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, and Jello Biafra, the lead singer of the fucking Dead Kennedys. Enough talking from me. Episode 199 of the John of All Trades podcast starts right now. <laughs> They wouldn't even let me in. It was so sold out, and I was one of the panelists, and I had my laminate and everything. Well, it's like a uh, Groucho Marx thing, right? I don't want to be a member of a club that would accept me as a member, right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Well, if you really want Marx Brothers stuff, the part of the untold story of Wax Tracks, that we can't, the label that we can't open the door too far, it's all we'll talk about for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> you know who I'm getting to. <laughs> a lot of the classic stuff was recorded at a place called Chicago Tracks Recording. The owner of Chicago Tracks, Reed Hyams, was at times spectacularly inept. And Jorgensen figured this out, and then the debauchery began. And, like, a lot of recording studios are real stiff and everything. But, you know, you want to ride, Paul Barker wants to ride his Harley into the studio and ride it around the room <laughs> to get the right motorcycle sound for stainless steel providers. This is the sort of thing that goes on. And as Al put it, the 
First time he realized Reed's weaselness, as he put it, was when the first time he was in there, he was editing a quarter-inch master tape, which is how you did it before the digital age. You had to get a white grease pencil and mark your edit, and it was a real art to cut it just right so you could never tell the thing was edited. And now, even old 60s radio hits, I can occasionally spot a bad edit. Oh, really? left in from time to boop. Yeah. And all they had was... Uh, the one little white pencil about two inches long. And, you know, that was a new client, Reed, eager to please. Hey, Reed, I, I can't work with this. I need a better grease pencil. <laughs> Reed comes back in with a whole bouquet of brown grease pencils. What am I supposed to do with these? <laughs> they were on sale. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, apparently some of the clap tracks on the, some of the dance of Revolting Cox were done mm-hmm. by... Oh, Reed's gone. Okay, we have the gay disco next door. Just tell him there's a party. Charge admission. (laughs) (laughs) I had not heard that. Oh, so you had not heard that. Uh, This is great shit that we're getting here then. And wasn't it Thrill Kill who mixed either an album or a song with one speaker out but got the mix done? I think that sounds about right. (laughs) And then told Reed the speaker didn't work, so you got all this other free studio time. Oh, I wish that was If he hadn't cut. Costs and fixed his speaker, none of this would have happened. Similar to, okay, since Al isn't here, I can tell this one too. The, you know, one of the iconic Wax Tracks releases that actually closes the film is uh, one of Al's little incognito projects called Thousand Homo DJs and an amazing cover of Supernaut by Black Sabbath, which originally had Trent Reznor's voice on it and then his record company at the time, TVT, which ironically the Wax Track stuff was sold to later, um, said, no, we own your voice, you can't be on this, we don't want you associating with this stuff. Which I think the disputed eventually uh, may have been one of the reasons that Trent's all but one album is on Interscope for Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. But huh. so um, they had Al put his own voice on, and then they had to remix it down. And DAT tapes had just come in, and there was a console DAT machine they brought in because Al would read the, you know, the new recording equipment manuals. Hey, read everybody! All this, every other studio already has one of these. You need to get one, and so he's get one, not knowing that that was the only one. But. Um, <laughs> But then the DAT machine broke down, and Reed ran out and came back with a boombox DAT machine player from Radio Shack, according to Al. Oh, no, Al J. All DAT machines are the same. Oh. <laughs> and, and so they put a blank DAT in there, pushed play, and it ate the tape immediately. Of course. So then as Al put it, are you thinking what I'm thinking? To You know, all the engineers there and the underpaid staff all plotted against Reed right along with the, the rest of this crew. And so um, so they mixed it to quarter inch but didn't tell Reed. And then one of these second engineers just got into Reed's apartment building, nailed the DAT tape to Reed's door with an angry note. And then they waited the next day for the phone call that finally came at 7 o'clock at night, maybe after a day-long trip to the bar. I'm I'm sorry, Al Jay. I think something's wrong with your master tape. Reed! (laughs) You owe us two days of free studio time! And they got it. (laughs) Jesus, God. (laughs) And apparently he even had his even more ridiculous main assistant, Buster, trying to tape the DAT tape back together, (laughs) taking it out of the shell. And of course, there'd already been a nail through it, so every time you tested it out, it would break it. <laughs> All he had to do was get his real dat console yeah. fixed. 
That sounds like Reed. <laughs> wow. Um, that's fantastic, and I didn't even ask a question. <laughs> it's also how they could afford to record all that stuff. Yeah, no too. kidding. Yep. They got reed baits from time to time. <laughs> reed baits? <laughs> even the staff would short their hours and turn in Welcome to the Reed Tracks interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a perfect segue. Uh, that was Jello Biafra telling uh, a fantastic story about Well, that's reed. where the last temptation of reed came from on the first Lard album. That's reed on the back cover we told him to pose with all these collages Al had made humiliating him or we weren't going to pay him. <laughs> so let's go down the line. This is Jello Biafra. Coming up next. Hi there. Groovy man. Groovy man from uh, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Julia. Julia. Nash. And you are the director. Of Industrial Accident. The of story Indus- of Wax Tracks That's right. Records. Perfect. Uh, Mark Skillicorn. My ball and chain. <laughs> My ball and chain. And you are listed as the writer, correct? Uh, yeah, that would probably be accurate, right? Mm, he's did a lot more than that, but that's all he'll really give himself credit for. Okay. Let's put it that way. It's a Cohen brothers relationship, but they're not <laughs> brother and sister. <laughs> <laughs> they just spawned two lovely sisters. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. So it's kind of like, um, it's almost like the White Stripes, you know, it, uh, Jack White's like, no, we're brother and sister. And it's like, aren't they married? <laughs> uh, neither were true. But uh, neither were true? I think she was ex-wife by then. Oh, yeah, by that point, probably. Supposedly. So Industrial Accident, uh, The History of Wax Tracks, uh, documentary here at the Denver Film Festival. And it's one I watched the other day. thought it was fantastic. Uh, wax Tracks in Denver, very near and dear to my heart. The label itself also... Uh, Great bands came out of that, I, and I, I was just so thrilled to see this story put together. I had no idea the origins, and I didn't necessarily know the Chicago connection. What ultimately propelled you to put this on film, this this whole story? Uh, it would have to be fan reaction to the retrospectacle that we put together in, in 2011. Yeah, 2011, okay, in Chicago. So that three-day event... Um, which I thought we maybe would sell a few tickets for one day, ended up selling out three nights. Um, and then just speaking with the fans throughout that event and how, you know, everyone was talking about what a difference it made and an impact and how it changed their life or saved their lives or took them on a whole different direction right. to what they're doing now. Um, so that to me was like, I had no idea. Uh-huh. I remember and, it was and, like, wow. And uh, it was super like moving. Everybody came out. Like that was connected to wax tracks yeah. for it. it so that really was kind of the the reason. It's like then these people really need to know about the two people that were behind. Yeah, this whole thing happening. So that was really the impetus for. Yeah, and your dad, right? Yep. Yeah, and yeah. so <clears throat> seeing this story, I didn't know the story of Jim and Danny. And what's funny is the very first part of. This documentary, I mean, it's it's a really sort of beautiful love story in a lot of ways. Is it? I, it is it fair to characterize the film that way? Sure. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what uh, we felt was one of the the things that came through the most is that love story and family, that sense of family. Yeah. One of the things that also struck me in terms, like thematically, of the documentary was. There, there's a theme about wax tracks being a physical space where people who felt disconnected uh, and 
Jello, you told this story about showing up at Wax Tracks in Denver about having uh, a poster of John Denver. No, it was the actual album cover of John Denver's <laughs> greatest hits. And keep in mind, even though he was a Texan who lived behind a wall in Aspen, he was considered royalty back right. when Denver <laughs> and right. Boulder were national ground zero testing grounds for the absolute, just about the worst music to come out of the 70s. Every wannabe John Denver, wannabe Dan Fogelberg, wannabe Firefall, while we want to be Eagles, America. you know, it, it surrounded <laughs> us as a teenager. This was rather miserable. So to go to this store and find that somebody else liked the Stooges oh, or yeah. the New York Dells or Roxy Music, not to mention driving nails through John Denver's eyes and painting blood coming down right on the front door of the store, I'm like. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm home. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. Someone else who speaks English here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious about that is in terms of Wax Tracks being a physical space where those who are sort of uh, feel like they don't have a place, whereas today people can go online and immediately find their tribe, right? It's very easy to connect with someone on a message board or on Facebook and find similar interests no matter what those interests are. And then figure out if they're Russians or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no one knows. But uh, I, I'm curious about your, your all thoughts, having lived through this. Is it better or worse now in terms of finding your tribe and finding your community and finding people who are like you? Is it easier now or is the fact that it's easier, does it make it more superficial? You, we've answered this before. Yeah, I mean, I, here's... But- We've had, uh, you know, we're, we're, I think a lot of people try to do a comparison of pre-internet to internet and one's good and one's bad, but I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I think there's, it's it's just a different way of doing it. And you You run your own race, right? And you are going to find your own people. Um, but the internet's just one little bit of that community. And so, you know, it's not just kind of uh, partitioned off into this, you know, digital space only. I mean, it just, it, it's just another tool to kind of create a, a community that can live outside that as well. Russian joke aside, I think it has been good for a lot of people who've been able to find like-minded souls and even figure out if they're transgender at a very early age when that term wasn't even around very much even 10 years ago. And I think it's been very, very good for that because before that... You have no idea how many Dear Abby-type letters I would get at the Alternative Tentacles P.O. box. You know, Dear Jello, I'm the only weird person in my town in Indiana, and people beat me up and call me a fag, and I got suspended from school for wearing a T-shirt with your band's name on it. Uh. What do I do? (laughs) And now, you know, people can network more with that, and I think that's a good thing. And they feel less alone. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's been st- many studies that have been the more time people spend on Facebook, the more lonely they actually become. Right. But put that aside, I think overall, yeah, people do, you know, it's very important to feel like, oh, my God, I'm not alone after all here. That's right. very, very important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I think that's valuable insight. I will say in terms of being able to find music online, though, I really miss going to record stores. And I think that's why. You still can. I, I know you can. But I miss... I miss that being almost a communal experience with my friends, you know, because there, there's a subset of people. I think that's why vinyl has grown and why the wax tracks in Denver is still in business. They say most of their sales, like vinyl is one of the only categories besides digital that continues to grow. 
And being able to be in that space, I kind of miss the days of record store employees being almost like tastemakers. And you allude to that in the documentary. You know, there's, there's algorithms online that will point you to stuff that you already like, but the people who work in record stores are exposed to so much that they can go, hey, if you like this, you may not think you're going to like this, but you are. Uh, and so I miss that. Totally true. And, and I'm speaking as a collector or a, you know, a, a vinyl collector sure. myself. <clears throat> the, the, you know, back at a time when, you know, you had to spend 10 bucks of your own money and you don't, it's kind of a crapshoot. You don't know what's, yeah. what's going to be. And, and, it, and that discovery, that moment of like, oh my God, this was totally worth it. And that, like this some obscure band becomes your favorite thing because you invested into it instead of yeah. something just kind of like you find it, you do a click and it's online. Something that just wanders into your field of vision. Yeah. Right? I yeah. think that's a really important part of kind of building that, you know, love. For, for music in general is just that, that discovery part of it. The Wax Track store in Denver at 13th and Washington is still very much like that to this day, if you ask me. And, you know, the, the fact they've got this down to a science. Imagine actually being Dave Wilkins, who not only runs the vinyl store, but he's the indie buyer, too, and gets deluged with offers to stock Thousands, right. literally, of seven inches of albums and then some CDs. But not just every month, but every week. Wow. And he has to go through the crapshoot of figuring out, okay, we have a, you know, we're doing better than we were a few years ago. But a lot of those he has to stock within the back of his mind, which customer I kind of know might buy this. Because <laughs> if that person doesn't, Nobody will, and then we're stuck with it. And I think that's also why, and I think it's Dave who writes most of these, a lot of the stuff, the newer stuff they stock in the vinyl store has really long descriptions of it now mm -hmm. that, that I, think, I think a lot of those Dave either writes or quotes Dave Wilkins and then pastes them on there to get somebody excited enough to even, you know, if it's a seven-inch sealed, listen to it to see if they're going to buy it. And stuff. I mean, they're very, very good at that. I don't think they'd be here 40 years later right. unless that kind of attention and electricity that Jim Nash and Danny Flesher made the original store such a hub for and grew. I mean, it's a different kind of electricity now, but that is still there. And there's not that many stores anywhere in the world that are like that. I mean, right. the Wax Racks one in Denver is one of the best stores in the world to this day. Cool. We're going tomorrow. <laughs> Fantastic. I go frequently. I, I'm lucky enough to live just down the street from it. Which, well, I, well I, I hope if you can find a way to get the score to see this, you see the Bathtubs Over Broadway movie that I just came from. It's another movie about weird records like yours. It's very well done and very well edited and genuinely emotional. But the subject, instead of what is called in the case of wax tracks now co-opting the term from the noisy stuff like throbbing gristle industrial music well this is about industrial musicals which is a much uh -huh. older term and i kept telling steve young whose movie it was you don't want to use that term or they're going to confuse it with nine inch nails no 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 <laughs> this is what they're called and have always been called industrial musicals or industrials date back to the 50s or earlier they still go on where a professional songwriter composer of a very commercial show tune type band is hired to compose and then theater troupe and actors and actresses then are hired to perform for 
a salesman convention or something, a musical on how great the corporation is. Oh, and these songs <laughs> must crazy. be heard to be believed. Oh, really? You know, Coca-Cola in the great bottling plant in the sky <laughs> where there's no EPA and there's no OHSA and everyone has to drink Coke all day. And I thought, if they're that down on the EPA, what are they putting in Coke now? Oh. And as Steve told me, Steve Young, um, the archivist of this, who's the narrator and subject of the film as well, he was a gag writer for Letterman and did the Dave's Record Collection thing. And oh, that's nice, why yeah. he stumbled into these and got so fascinated that he even tracked down some of the people who were in these musicals, found some of the composers, one of whom he sat down and wrote a new song for it. So all of us who were interviewed for the film, including the woman who sang the most, the infamous, my bathroom, my bathroom <laughs> is a special kind of place. He found all these people and interviewed me and Don Bowles and some others and then brought us all onto the Warner Brothers lot in L.A. to sing one of these songs, a new one that he and Mr. Beebe, one of the veteran composers, had written together all about positive this, that, and the other, motivating you to sell, sell, sell. I was cast as the psychedelic plumber. <laughs> and by sheer coincidence, <laughs> I wore the same hat I was wearing in the movie and stuff. That's perfect. That'll go in the blog piece. Yeah, but anyway, that's showing again tomorrow at 4.30. It's supposedly sold out, but uh, there may be wow. some tickets popping open. And if you can somehow get some, and I'll try for you if you want. Yeah, that would be cool. You need to see this. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. Yeah, hell yeah. Okay, question for you, Groovy Man, Jello Biafra. Oh. In terms of, you know, given that, that your bands have, you know, have a long legacy at this point, how has it changed in terms of making new music in, in old sort of record store culture in the Wax Tracks days? Versus now navigating a digital environment, a largely digital environment. Um, or does it change? It doesn't change for me. I mean, the formula is still the same of how we write. You know, it's a little more casual than it used to be because we're used to doing it. And we just sort of sit back in it and create. And when we can't, we stop and pick up later. You okay. know, we did the album over a few years that we just wrapped up that will be out on Valentine's Day. 2019. So that, you you wrote that over the course How of a few are you years. Releasing it, we're releasing it on our label, Sleazebox Records. Okay, that we've had underneath us for at least ten years now. That's sort of just where we are. That's our safe zone. That's our label. You know, sure. I I think that's good. That's I mean, the only do, way to do it. Even now. the ministry camp now is talking about. Slowly doling out and dropping out the next one song by song and just selling them as quickie downloads for a while. And then later the album comes out where the songs are collected and you have something to hold in your hand. I mean, it, it, in some ways it's galling how many people buy vinyl. I'm sure glad they're doing it. But then they have, there's a download card inside, or they right. have a stream service. And like, okay, I'm going to get the download card, put it in my iPod, and then I'm going to put this on the shelf to show to my hipster friends and <laughs> never play the record. But at least, you know, <laughs> there's at least something of a vinyl right. market. It is not replaced for the, cr for the crash in CD sales and file sharing by any stretch of the imagination. And streaming in the long run, unless you're Beyonce, you ain't going to clean up with that mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. So it's more and more of a 
a struggle, the very struggle that eventually did the Wax Tracks label in, right. and I'm constantly struggling to keep that from doing alternative tentacles in and whatnot. So um, it's uh, you know it's a, it's like a battle for everybody to buy an actual thing you can hold in your hand who sell a thousand copies. That's a gold record or at least a cardboard record. <laughs> Does that, uh, I mean, does the streaming culture help you, like, does that help gain exposure in terms of doing, like, a live tour, though? I mean, is has the business model changed in that way to where you're pivoting more towards getting people out to, you know, experience the well, show? Well, I mean, or? touring's the only way t- for us to survive, basically, now. I Was mean, that not always the case, or has it always been a touring model? It's always been that way, pretty okay. much. I mean, you know. Everything else just sort of piddles in. <laughs> right. It, you know. it drops in the bucket, right? I don't tour, but I would think that for tours, like your merch is where you're... That's... It, I forgot to mention. Okay, but well, that's, I mean, that's, that's like the physical thing that people can buy now, Yeah, right? oh, yeah. I mean, that's the core of the machine. That's why you go on tour. That's right. Ironically, what's saved alternative tentacles more than anything the past couple years is Nazi Trump's fuck off (laughs) t-shirt. That's funny. Well, I interviewed uh, Vinny Fiorello, who's the drummer for Less Than Jake recently, and he has his own label, and he said with sort of albums he was also you know looking into doing like custom action figures or figurines or you know coming up with some other way you get the music in front of people and people are going to have it oh, right. digitally but you know where can you sort of make additional margin what what are different ways that you can do that and merch i think is merch. an interesting way that yeah. that i hadn't really thought about well i hadn't thought about action figures but now i am <laughs> I mean, some thrill kill cult action figures. Oh my god, so fun! Some Jim and, oh. yeah. and Danny ones. <laughs> yeah, Jim and like Danny action Amy's figures. Playhouse. Yeah. Have, oh my god, ideas. Well, I mean, if you put Jim and Danny on top of your record collection, I mean, peop- <laughs> uh, there's a subset of people that I think would lose their minds over that, right? Especially after the film. I maybe maybe actually. In particular, you need Danny as a foil. It's Jim and Danny puppets. So you can make your own puppet show and build your little Ogden store thing out of cardboard. And then, and then if, Eric, what are you buying that for? Why, why don't you want to buy these Bowie collectibles? You're buying this dumb stuff with synthesizers on it, like Tangerine Dream. And what is that? I'm, I'm glad to get that out of my store. I don't mind, but just take it away. Get that new age music out of here. <laughs> so, of course, you know, on more than one occasion, I just loved needling Jim in front of quote-unquote important people later on, that who would have guessed that considering what you were like to people then, here you are raking it in, not just selling synthesizer records, but selling disco synthesizer <laughs> records. And he shot back and went, yeah, well, you had hair down to your ass, and you liked Captain Beefheart. <laughs> <laughs> The man had a sharp tongue. He was a very passionate person in all his beliefs. Mm-hmm. Well, that was one thing uh, watching the documentary that I that I sort of wish there was more of. I wish there was more of Jim and Danny's like actual voices in it. Was that a challenge to sort of paint the picture of those two in in the absence of having a ton of archival footage of them? Uh, yeah, for sure, because they're not living. So right. that you know they're. I think the hardest thing for me I felt to to convey was my dad's sense of humor. Mm-hmm. 
he was just so fucking hilarious. <laughs> I mean, there's no, he, he was, you just, yeah, I mean, yeah, there like, was no way to believe what, that, what he just said. Or did. <laughs> and like, why did he oh, do that? And he just did it. Even when you're on the butt of the other end and you had hair down to your ass and liked Captain Beefheart. You'd come back for more. It was an abusive. You'd sign up for punishment. Can you speak to that for the audio piece? Um, About? Just like that kind of like, your question was really like, was it difficult to get without all of that audio? Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, in in terms of, I, I had a really good sense for who these guys were and what their personalities were. And you get that from, you know, you look at it through the lens of the people who are around them and you get that through some like home video footage. But, you know, in terms of the way you built that, was it a challenge, uh, structuring that in the edit? It was just in the fact that exactly what Julia said, like the, the fact that this guy was so charismatic and funny and just, and just cut right to the bone. Yeah. That was, I, I don't think there was anything we could do without having him there to, to convey how intense that was. <laughs> so, um, that was a challenge and we, we got there a little bit. I mean, the, the, the story of Julia tells when they were kids and like, her dad calling a prostitute over. Oh my I mean, god! That's that like, story had me on the floor. But it, that's how it was, you know, and that's what she grew up with, and it was just so wrong. And but <laughs> like we woke up one day uh, when we were up for I think spring break or something, and he and Danny had already gone to the store, and my brother and I woke up and went to we opened the microwave, and he had placed a scoop of cottage cheese, two tomatoes, and this dead rat that the <laughs> cats had brought in. And had a little sign like "Good morning." <laughs> it was in the microwave. How it was old were so you? So gross. Uh, I don't know, fourteen maybe. <laughs> it was that kind of just like, "Here's breakfast," or I don't remember what the sign was, but it was just yuck. Well, you you would you wouldn't guess from the label's focus, although the first thing he put out there was "Strike Under," which was a punk band, but um, kind of. I think there was some future naked ray gun people in that, actually. But, um, you know, when, when Wax Tracks first opened here, it wasn't just the Roxy music and the Bowie angle and whatnot, but um, very supportive of punk from the get-go. Right. And a lot of when there was one of the few places in the country you could even get this stuff. Yeah. And um, so eventually even brought out a band from Los Angeles who were more of the poppy side of New Wave called The Nerves, mm-hmm. who were Jack Lee, who wrote Hanging on the Telephone, and Paul Collins and Peter Case were the three members of the band. And uh, they played, and then they decided to have a barbecue for them, but picked Flagstaff Mountain outside of Boulder instead of somebody's yard for the barbecue. I guess they couldn't have one on the sidewalk on Ogden Street when Jim and Danny lived in the basement and stuff. <laughs> but... You know, the the rustic part of Colorado we all love so much did not go over well with Jim Nash, where (laughs) Danny was driving their Pinto, I'm in the back, and he's throwing firecrackers at hikers on the way up that windy (laughs) flash, giggling like a little child and stuff, on the way up to the barbecue, and then eventually it's time to go back. And, you know, we've been drinking by then, probably Danny too. Danny was driving, but on that road, which is quite the windy, wild road that a lot of cars drive off of every year, 
Danny was trying to get down the mountain, and Jim was trying to grab the wheel away from him, from the passenger. I want to drive. I want to drive. I want to No, no, no. I want to drive. Yeah. That sounds like them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, supposedly, I mean, their love together was very passionate, but it also meant that it got heated at times. Oh, yeah. Apparently, there were even fist fights in the car while driving now and again, too. I heard some. Did you ever see that, Julian? I never saw it. I saw the aftermath, the black eye, the, you know, what happened? Cut. Wasn't there an ashtray once or something Uh, that went flying? There was a mysterious (laughs) hole in their bedroom wall once. (laughs) Most drinkers have. Oh, well. (laughs) Well, in Chicago, how much were the bands all hanging out around the store? Was it a lot? I mean, just constantly? Yeah. Yeah, All the time. Because everybody worked there or. In the front, on the stage. Everybody yeah. was co- uh, constantly well, you traffic. All, you all worked there. Too. Yeah, we all worked there. We lived in the hood. We, you know. What neighborhood was this in, in Chicago again? Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. Okay. And so you said you all worked there. Like, what kinds of jobs were you doing there? I'm front counter sales. Okay. Uh, you? Yeah. <laughs> I guess Marston like, worked in the boutique yeah. for a while. I, Fell I, asleep I, on I, the I, counter. And, and let me guess, <laughs> you lasted longer at the retail counter than Al Jorgensen did, right? Yeah. I, don't, I was in and out of the store. You know, I moved away and lived in um, London for a couple of years of recording. Okay. And then I came back and started working at the store. Then the band took off and got really popular. We were always touring. And so I got fired. <laughs> I lit the window on fire accidentally once. Jim wouldn't hire me for the Denver store because he thought I was too weird. (laughs) Was he right? It was a perfect place for for the musicians to work just because it was they a could go pot on tour just, and come back and have yeah, a job. Yeah. And so oh, that, you have this rotating cast of characters yeah. then at that point. I mean, it was a joke that I was fired. <laughs> of course. You know, I went back to, I was, like I said, I didn't even have to be hired. I just lived and worked there mm-hmm. sort of my whole life. Did that did that contribute to the sort of muddied financial picture for Wax Tracks, given that you have these bands under this label and they're getting... You know, like you go out on tour, but you're also working in the store. So, how you know how are you getting paid? How are you collecting wages? Was that was that when ever... I... a secret? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a lot of labels, big and small, struggle with is a lot of times the bills from the manufacturers come due mm. in half the time that the money from the sales comes back from the distributor to pay the manufacturers. So you're constantly juggling how to find money when there isn't any, and then maybe something didn't sell like you hoped it would, or it's just too far away, but the manufacturers want their money now, or we're putting you on stop, and your reorder ain't going to your wholesaler. Which, you know, I think the store helped the label in that situation because, like it says in the movie, I mean – he would come and take money from the store right. to pay for things. And so it, it just was feeding itself. Yeah. It was like us. We were all, it was all going into one thing and coming out constantly. It yeah. wasn't rising into a Mecca, but right. it, it, you know what I mean? I it, follow you. Yeah. It, was, it was family. It was people that had beliefs and things just grew from that. You know, and sure. and then they fell in place, and, and then you know, it fell apart. And then yeah. it fell apart, you know, because 
there's all different, you know, even in the business side, there were all different players in that too, you know. Danny and Jim, Jim learned the best that he could on his own and developed his business that way. But, you know, that was new to him. And, you know, all he could do was do his best to make it work. And he did make it work. And it did sail. And, you know... All that other crap, you know, it was mismanagement or the wrong people that were working, sending out stuff, you know, first class to Europe or just ridiculous holes in the system. That sucked a lot of power out of it as well as timing and stuff. You know, he didn't have a big overhead investor, a big major label feeding wax tracks, which would have been ideal someday, but... The store wasn't set up that way, and it grew into what it was. It was different, you know, of other stores. Or uh, It started a whole generation of fun record stores, I think. I mean, I don't know. There's probably some in L.A. during the, that period, too, but... Or New York had their stores, but London, London, because the store, the the reason the Wax Track store in Denver was so well stocked with this stuff nobody had ever seen was the missing guy in the film who didn't want to be interviewed. The other part of the triangle, Mike Smythe, was going back and forth to rock on records in London and bringing back all this British stuff no one had ever seen, while taking biker flick soundtracks and other things back that. Rock On could do a lot with. And the owner of Rock On was Ted Carroll, who mm. first founded a punk and new wave label called Chiswick that put out some, spelled Chiswick, that put I out some pretty amazing people, things. Yeah. And then then started the Ace label and the Big Beat label, and which are both, especially Ace, going very strong today. And there was that back back and forth, too. I guess... I began to worry about what was going on at the Wax Tracks label when suddenly, instead of two or three or five releases a month for people ordering from stores to sift through, people to write about, people to cover, suddenly it was getting to be 10, 15, maybe even 25 a month. And it was, they were flooding their own market and and competing against themselves. In a way, some of this was requirements with some kind of a deal they signed with the Play It Against Sam people out of Belgium. But that undoubtedly really shot the manufacturing bills up. And they were shipping out of, you know, they're the label of the future. We don't use cardboard mailers. We have these special molded plastic ones that are yellow and have a little cardboard in them. But you know immediately this is the thing you want to open because it doesn't look like any other package. That costs money. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Is someone trying to light a fucking pilot light like over and over again? What is that? That's something to do with your heating. I mean, <laughs> I didn't a, think it happened in I think, newer buildings. I mean, it's Jesus. a stray drum sample that the yeah. a ghost and is it's, is it's giving us right now. Ambient, ambient track I'm working on. <laughs> no vocals. Yeah, we're we're just looping it. It's like uh, the eight bars, right? Metal machine, be- yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> from the beginning of the I mean, movie. Al said that great snare crack he was using for a while on some of the vintage revolting cock stuff was baseball bat on metal chair. And then they put that on the trigger with a real snare drum, and they uses that sound or both of them at the same time, and wow. then you've got what you've got. <laughs> 
This is great stuff. The uh, so that totally fucked me up there. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a shame they didn't get a drum sample from the impact from when a disgruntled second engineer threw an ashtray through the windshield of Reed's car. <laughs> great. I don't know that. Have you guys found, uh, in terms of the response to this movie, who is responding most strongly to it? Is the is it the people who sort of lived through it and went through it, or is it younger folks who maybe are drawn to that culture because? I've never had a desire to live in a different time, except for maybe like right around 77 when punk was hitting. Cause I mean, I grew up loving punk rock and I, I wanted to sort of experience what it was like in that first wave. But what has the response been like for this movie? Who's responded most strongly? Um, I think obviously the strongest response comes from people that were there at the time or who right. had somehow found their way to the store you know, the response is, has been great. Like, we really captured that feeling and that vibe, which is cool. But surprisingly, people that have no idea what this is about, it's their response has been, it, it's really positive. And that was kind of what we set out to do. I mean, not set out to do, but our hopes were that people that had no idea what this is about could actually kind of like be transported there yeah. and kind of understand the story and have all of that unfold for them. And that it's worked so far. And I want to add something else just about like capturing a time. We spent a lot of time and kind of pushed people away that were trying to give us advice of like, well, you need to, you need to say how this stuff influenced Marilyn Manson and, and Nine Inch Nails. And it's like, we we already know that and people <laughs> right. know that but we wanted to really just capture a time a moment in time and not kind of bring it into this time yeah and i think that was successful in a way to kind of give it a certain kind of reverence of of not really explaining anything more of just saying like this was special this is what it was and it was some pretty amazing things happened fill, yeah fill in the rest for yourself yeah exactly right? so I mean, that was that was very conscious of not a lot of people were saying, like, you got to, like, bring in this modern day. you got to have people, DJs now, saying how influence, influential it was. And it, it, it just kind of took away from the narrative that we were really trying to tell about this love story. Yeah, it's I, not a story, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not writing, uh, like, an opinion piece in the fucking Huff Post. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not looking to inform a current moment. This is a snapshot of, of a time that existed with these two men, yeah. right? And, and, and everyone who is associated with them and this store. I mean, so many documentaries on so many things now and even, you know, scripted acting films as well. There's this whole style that drives me up the wall where they beat around the bush, assume you already know every, the plot. So it's just, here's some, here's some little bits here. Here's some trees for a while to set the mood. And they don't really capture the spirit. The energy, the electricity, and it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And which is why I was really impressed with this movie. Both the filmmakers and the editor did an amazing job. I mean, the sad part is Dwayne Davis and Dave Stidman, who Jim and Danny sold Wax Tracks to, and now it's their 40th anniversary. Their interviews wound up on the cutting room floor. (laughs) But the second time I saw the movie, I was like, no... I'm not sure they could have gone to too many other things it's without so disrupting true. the flow and everything because the flow is is very good and it's a it's a lesson for a lot of other people who want to make documentaries or other things on how to do it. 
I mean, another thing will drive me nuts. Oh, yes, uh, some, you know, music ledger, something will be talking about what their live show was. Ten seconds of a real live show, then back to some critic talking about it. And I'd rather just see the whole live show. <laughs> right. right. Thank you for saying that because that was, uh, you know, we, there were so many different paths that we could have gone down. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before where uh, Mike Smythe and Greg Pickett, which we don't talk in the film, but he's a really, he was a, a an early employee in Denver and was super instrumental in actually pressing bootlegs, which then led to creating this label. And so that was Greg, and, right? Greg, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it was really, um, we we tried, but it felt so crowbarred into the narrative. And w- it, for Denver, we were really conscious of getting in and out and telling the most meaningful story, and not you know not to yeah. not to brush over it at all because it's it's huge. But there were like. Uh, like Greg and Mike Smythe and, and even just going into Chicago, like we didn't talk about like John Hughes and how important like Wax Flex was for John Hughes right. movies. I mean, that was a big deal that we couldn't really go into that direction because it took away from the entire arc right. that we were trying to tell. Right. And I mean, you didn't talk about the movie High Fidelity, which, you no. know, there's, there's like, Pretty yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty in Pink. I mean, we could have, there's, there are a lot of I things haven't that seen we either didn't, one of those movies, right. you know, um, I, I mean, going into this, my experience was with the Denver Wax Track store. So I was I was looking for that, and I, I remember thinking, you know, with documentaries about that that take place in some level on your town, you want to play the I've been there game, right? You want to go, oh yeah, look at that, I I know that one. But I got halfway into it, and I totally forgot about that because, and I no longer cared about the Denver store in terms of the narrative that you were telling because I got so wrapped up in Jim and Danny. So cool. I I thought that was That's really really cool. Especially, you know, we want it to go. Yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, I I do it. <laughs> I mean, another important part of the love story, I think, that didn't click with me till years later about about Jim and Danny is they were out gay when most people weren't, yeah. and Denver Absolutely. barely had a gay scene of any kind at all, and they helped with that too, but they weren't exactly Judy Garland people. They were something else <laughs> right. entirely. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 they built that as well. And, and, and the, 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 the tale of when Jim announces to your mother that he's leaving the family and going off with Danny, and somehow the family survived. Yeah. You know, I mean, your mom was at the Chicago premiere and... Um, it's obvious she still, you know, always loved him. Yeah, it's it. Um, that is one thing I think my brother and I are very lucky. Extremely so. That yeah. the my parents never talked poorly of one another, and my mom was always. I mean, she's awesome, and I think it was Nashville Film Fest, where I think the first comment from the audience was. I just want to say your mom is a total badass. And I was like, thank you. I think so, too. And what a fun um, thing to hear about your mom. Too. Yeah. No. So I told her right away. I'm like, mom, you're a badass. That was good. <laughs> but, yeah, you're you're totally right. I mean, and again, that is the common thread of this entire movie is family. You know, Our family know. stayed together. This family stayed together. Like, you know, all these guys are my big brothers, basically, yeah. you know, um, and it's and, and that somehow the bond survived and your mom got through it. 
this wasn't uh, you know you know a husband leaving a family for another man in Denver. This was in Topeka, Kansas, right, yeah. Yeah. where Jim and Danny met in the park one night. Right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminds me of uh, I've I've heard Dan Harmon interviewed. He created the show Community, and he said he loves the concept of ad hoc families. And so the Wax Track story is an ad hoc family. There's mm-hmm. people from disparate backgrounds from all across the place who find each other. And for whatever reason, they all just make sense. Yeah. And so getting to see that in a milieu that I love, you know, punk rock, industrial, hard music. I mean, that. so this was near and dear to my heart, and it was a thrill to be able to do this. So cool. really appreciate the time. Now's the time on the show when we do plugs. So where can people find Industrial Accident? If you know off the top of your head. Um, you can find it at film festivals right now because that's the only place we are showing it. Gotcha. Do you um, have a website? Do you have social media? Yep. Waxtracksfilms.com would be probably the best one. Uh, social media would be our the Waxtracks documentary page. There's like a million things. Isn't there a DVD scheduled for release in April? Oh, that's sort of happening, yes. The soundtrack is coming out. The DVD should be released in April. I mean, it's all, you know, it's a process. It takes a very long time. You know, we have oh, yeah. uh, licensing for festivals that last one year. That ends the end of March. Okay. Then we're going to drop it hard and heavy, people. Look out. Nice. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I will put a link. Spoken like her father's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I will put a link to all of that on the John of All Trades companion blog piece. That's J-O-N of all trades dot U-S. Uh, all of you, this was an enormous pleasure. Thank you all for taking the time and continued success to all of you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks. I don't know if this is live or not. When's it going to run? This will run uh, Thursday. Oh, okay. In that case, I'm not going to invite anybody to the lion's lair for my DJ thing tonight because <laughs> it'll be long gone. <laughs> and if you weren't there, you missed out. That's so right. tough shit. If All you're right. in Chicago on the 17th of November, though, you can see That's a little right. more. Yeah, DJ I talked goodness. them into putting me on there. <laughs> or am I putting them on? We shall see. <laughs> Righteous. All right, go see Jello. 17th of Chicago or 17th of November in Chicago at the Liars Club. Ooh, the Liars. And we're Club. not lying. <laughs> All right, thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I just realized you had your shirt. Holy shit, what an interview. What a show. What a film festival. Thank you, Julia Nash, Mark Skillicorn, Groovy Man, and Jello Biafra. Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks. You heard it's coming out on DVD in April, so if you missed it at this year's Denver Film Festival, check it out on DVD. I've got links to all the pertinent places where you can stay up with Industrial Accident on the John of All Trades companion blog piece. That's J-O-N of all trades.us. Stay up with me on social media. J-O-A-T pod is the handle. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. If you're doing anything online, building a campaign, building a website, doing online advertising or promotion, 4Degrees is the shop you need to get in contact with. They will get the right message for you and then get that message in front of the people who need to see it most. Number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. I'm back with episode 200 here soon. It's an episode unlike anything I've done before, so get ready for that. We're going to do it in style. I don't want to tease it too much because I don't want to oversell it, but it's one I'm very excited for. It's one I'm also sort of nervous for, and you'll find out why very soon. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. They're available on iTunes. Stitcher, Google Play, and most other podcatchers. It's a pleasure to bring you coverage from this year's Denver Film Festival. 
be back here very soon with episode 200. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.